Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. My conversation today is with Dr. Jason Jay, Senior Lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management and the Director of the Sustainability Initiative at MIT Sloan. Jason's research focuses on how people navigate the tensions inherent in the quest for sustainability as they simultaneously pursue their own self-interest and the flourishing of human and other life. With Gabriel Grant, he is the author of Breaking Through Gridlock, The Power of Conversation in a Polarized World. In addition to all of this, he's a former school teacher. If you've ever had a difficult conversation or tried to find a solution to a polarized debate, I think you're going to gain some tools from our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website at intersectioneducation.com or follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed. We appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Dr. Jason Jay. Well, hello, Dr. Jay. How are you today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. I just realized that the whole Dr. Jay thing, do you, do you ever get that? It does happen. It's a little <laughs> of a generational thing whether people remember the basketball player or, or not. It's a sort of a litmus test. <laughs> See how old they are, hey? Um, Let's get into it. One of the one of the many things you've done is teach, and you've got a master's in education. Um, let's talk about what led you to teaching. What were some of the things that um, helped you, or kind of helped you become a teacher, and and some of the things that you learned in maybe being a teacher that helped your work after you left the classroom? Mm-hmm. So I bounced around a lot in my early career. Um, I was, as an undergraduate, studying cognitive neuroscience and information technology and wanted to figure out a way to bring those two things together. Um, And I thought educational technology would be a fun place to play. Um, So I went, this was in 1999, I went out to Silicon Valley, kind of, you know, where a lot of the initial wave of dot-com stuff was happening. And um, worked for a company that was running early childhood education, so running preschools all around the U.S., and I was hired as sort of like a technology specialist who sort of made up a job. <laughs> and um, thinking about, you know, what the web could mean for their business, and we came up, I came up with this idea for a, a web-based tool for parents and teachers of young children to suggest developmentally appropriate activities. And, um, and so I created that as a startup company called Little Engine, it was incubated by um, Knowledge Universe that was a, like a parent company that owned a bunch of different education businesses. And in, and I hired somebody who had a PhD in education and or an EDD and um, to kind of look at how we would use developmental assessments to then make suggestions about uh, development of corporate activities. And, um, you know, but it was very much kind of building a technology team and, and thinking about software developments. It wasn't you know, that close to the front lines of what actually happens in a classroom. And, um, and I think that was, that was a big mistake for us. Um, you know, I think nowadays you probably wouldn't get away with that. I think kind of the lean startup approach where you're rapidly iterating with customers more, um, would have been healthy for us at the time. But, um, but so we built a, a, a cool product, but we were going to market with it and trying to raise money all when the dot com bubble burst and we shut it down. Um, and um, and uh, I, I did some traveling, but then when I came back to the States, I thought, you know what, let me, let me just get a little bit more grounded in what actually happens in these classrooms um, and to kind of close this period of inquiry. And so I, I got a job as a kindergarten teacher um, at a small private preschool in Boulder, Colorado, where I'd grown up. 
uh, it was run using the Reggio Emilia approach, which is this really cool kind of collaborative learning um, approach that had a heavy emphasis on teacher professional development and sort of the school as a learning community. Um, and so it was really cool to, at, to work directly with kids, work directly with other teachers in a co-teaching kind of environment and, um, and see, you know, what didn't really see the, the, the milieu that I had thought we were, I was creating products for, but didn't really understand. <laughs> um, and, um, and it was, you know, just really bonded with these kids. Actually, I recently realized just did some math and realized that those kids are probably now in college and might, you know, in theory be the kind of students that I'm teaching now, um, at MIT. Um, so, uh, that was kind of interesting wake up, uh, wake up call about how old I'm getting. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, but anyway, that it was a great experience and really got to be part of a, um, a very cutting edge learning community in that school. And one of the things that it sensitized me to was this notion that, you know, the best way to support children's development is through adult development. And that, um, and that if we want to create a, a, a dynamic and adaptive learning society, we need to be thinking about learning at multiple levels. Mm-hmm. Um, um, now, my and, and, and so when I went to the Harvard Ed School for my master's, um, which I did in sort of technology and education and adult development, um, really started thinking about, you know, what is that going so going from an emphasis on children's education to thinking about um, adult development, organizational learning and uh, and what that all can look like um, at the same time that all that was happening. I was confronting a lot of the big environmental and social justice issues that we are facing as a global community and was thinking a lot about what education is for, right? Like, are we preparing people to just be better sort of consumers and short-term investors, or are we preparing people to be citizens of a, of a, of a human civilization that could, you know, thrive for generations to come. And, um, and so again, I found myself, you know, with these very multidisciplinary interests, but wanting to put them all together and to think about sort of adult development and organizational learning towards sustainability. And that's really what led me to um, eventually doing a PhD around that topic here at the MIT Sloan School of Management. And now I teach here to MBA and executive level students um, and um, with this emphasis on sustainable business. Um, And the course of that work one of the things that I came to understand was a critical capability for people who wanted to be leaders in sustainability um, was the ability to engage people um, with different points of view, um, essentially a, a, a set of leadership skills for um, reaching out. You know, so, so if we're graduating students who are going to go off and work for some big corporation, but trying to drive more socially and environmentally responsible practices they have to find a way to talk to a conservative CFO about that agenda in a way that's going to be constructive and lead to, you know, um, getting their projects done. And, um, and so my colleague Gabriel Grant and I started doing these workshops to help people have conversations across, um, the lines in a sense, um, organizational, political, and uh, otherwise about values laden issues, um, like climate change or like, um, you know, diversity, inclusion, or immigration. And, um, and then we were, we were putting together this book. We were sort of thinking about it as about trying to solve what in in the States we call like the preaching to the choir problem, um, which is people who are advocates on issues, just hang out with other people who sort of think similarly to them. Um, so we kind of thought about calling it beyond the choir. Um, and then, we were going through the last round of edits in 2016 as the, as the Brexit and Trump elections were happening and, and we were moving into this. And what we realized was that we had wanted to define an audience of people who are advocates and we were going to support those advocates and being more effective as advocates. But what happens in a polarized world is that everybody becomes an advocate. Um, you get people out into the streets protesting who had never done that before. And, um, 
And any issue, any, any conversation about a hot button topic gets very hot, very fast. And so there's a much broader applicability to the skills that we were developing among these sustainability advocates. So we ended up titling the book, breaking through gridlock, the power of conversation in a polarized world and, and, and positioning it and drawing on broader sets of examples, um, for that broader context. Um, so it's been a bit of a meandering journey, as I said, from education technology to early child education to adult development and organizational learning to sustainability to this domain of conversations. Um, and, uh, you know, I've tried to sort of solve the solve problems as I see them um, along the way. But uh, um, I do think there's been some, you know, useful cross, you know, kind of cross fertilization between the different points, managing a classroom of business school students coming up with startups isn't that different from kindergartners. (laughs) No, they're not. And one of the things that I really like about your guys' work is that um, I think that you teach or you talk about um, powerful skills and that is that skill to have powerful conversations and how to, how to, how to find solutions to difficult problems. You teach adults, but how would you say, or how would you go about teaching those skills to students in the K to 12 world. So if you had to break down some first steps about, you know, what can teachers, how can we be introducing this concept? Um, would it be exactly the same? Um, Mm. how might you go about that? What would you Mm. say? It's a great question. I have a, I have a four year old and an eight year old. (laughs) So my son who's going into third grade, um, you know, his tendency is to launch into these conversations with, you know, Donald Trump is evil and he's trying to destroy the world. Um, so I'm actually trying to support him in, ha- in, in if he's going to engage these topics, doing it in a constructive way. Um, uh, now, I think it's challenging, you know, uh, you know, coming, ha- having looked at sort of this adult development and developmental psychology landscape a bit when I was in grad school um, and having that be an ongoing sort of perspective that informs my work. Um, you know, I think there really is a process of moral development, right? You can go back to Kohlberg and Gilligan and Keegan. And, um, and I think that people over the life journey gain greater and greater ability to have empathy with others um, and to hold complex and particularly contradictory ideas in their head at the same time. Um, kids can be very black and white about what's right and wrong and the good guys and the bad guys. Um, and they can be very sort of absorbed in their own trajectory and their own experience and perspective. And it's hard sometimes to take, to step into someone else's shoes. Um, they're very open hearted and, uh, you know, can be kind, but an inclusive compared to some adults, but there also is a way in which it's, it's hard to develop those skills. So I think, um, I think one of the things that is really important in dialogues across difference is being able to really not start with kind of positions like this is what I think is right. And I think you're wrong, but sort of backing up to from, this is my position to these are my values and backing up even more from these are my values to these, these are my experiences that have come to lead me to the values that I have. Right. So like where, you know, um, who in your life has been influential, you know, who in your life has helped you think about, race, right? And what did your grandparents say to you about race? And um, what was your experience, you know, when have people talked to you about it? And what have been your experiences as a white person or as a brown person or whatever, right? Or if it's about environmental topic, you know, what are the landscapes that you grew up in that you feel like are home and that you're connected to? And what changes have you seen in those places over time? And what are your hopes and your fears for those places looking forward? Um, And getting students the ability to answer those kinds of questions for themselves, 
and to ask those kinds of questions of other people so that you really get a sense of what have been your experiences and what are your hopes and fears? And then from there, what do you value and what do you want to have happen and what are you worried about that's going to happen? And then, and then how does that lead to the positions that you might take on a contentious issue? Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's, you know, um, you know, how to keep the schoolyard clean or some like larger macro, you know, and, and how to, and how to, um, deal with bullying to, you know, the, the macro versions of those challenges, which are, you know, how to tackle climate change and how to create inclusive societies. I think that that's some some good advice for for speaking about it with young kids. Let's bring it over to the adults who are involved in education. Oftentimes, you know, we we have to engage in those polarizing discussions. And one of the complicating factors is that we're talking not only about people's values and things like that, but then we we get into almost that hyper rational uh, idea, which is now we're dealing with kids, uh, and so the stakes get get really high. And I'm not saying the stakes aren't high in environmentalism or whatnot, but it kind of, when it touches their family, we, I feel like sparks are, are more often (laughs) ready to fly. Mm -hmm. What tips or advice would you give with people who are having those polarizing discussions involving their children? Is there any slight difference or would you still go back to that kind of narrative and talking about stories? Um, it's a good question. Um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think, I I think when I think about my kids, um, you know, what's bound up in that is that there's somebody who I love, who I want to protect and I want to keep them safe. Right. Um, and I also want to also so there's kind of like a negative side of it which is that there's things that i don't want to happen to my child Mm -hmm. right and then there's a set of positive things about like this there's a way that i want my child to grow like a kind of person i want my child to be and a kind of set of you know values that i want them to embody and things that they're going to be known for to be you know kind and generous and courageous and thoughtful and reflective right Um, so, and, and then, and then my reaction to whether it's appropriate for them to have sex ed in third grade or fifth grade or eighth grade, um, is going to be based on, it's going to be built off of that. Right. Mm -hmm. So I could get into an argument about which grade I think sex ed should be in and what, what it should consist of, which would be an example of one of these polarizing issues. Right. Um, but I think that, you know, the, a really deep dialogue on this gets at what were my experiences growing up and like, when did I come to learn about these things? And is that a way that I thought was appropriate or not? And, um, and how does that shape that? How is that then related to my hopes and fears for my child? And can I share what my fears and my hopes are? And then from there, how does that lead me to oh, – and I think there's a third element. So there's one element, which is what was my personal experience. Mm-hmm. The second element is what are my hopes and fears for my child. And then there's a third dimension, which is what other perspectives and data am I consuming about this topic, right? And like what are people in my, in my um, social group, right? Um, and, and peer group saying, and what data are they sharing about this topic, whether it's on social media or in person, person conversation, um, or what am I hearing the radio hosts talk about on the stations that I listen to? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then given all of that, how have I come to the, the position that I want to take on this? Yeah. Um, because I think that's the deeper ground. Now, Um, And and when you do that, what you find is that people often have common ground that they didn't know was there, right? They have similar hopes and fears. They might have similar ends, but the different sense of the means, right? Or they're paying attention to different data um, or or stories or perspectives based on, again, like 
where they go to church and what um, radio stations they're listening to and who's on their social media networks. Um, and I think just getting that sense of what is each person's contingent perspective, then hammer, then getting to the positions and which of the positions is right and wrong and which one should we go for and how should we compromise and negotiate over those in a, in a political sense. Mm-hmm. But we never, we don't take the time to get to know where each of us is coming from. So, I mean, the simplest advice is if you're going to get a group of people together who are going to talk about an issue, take them, start the meeting by going around and letting each person just say, what is your, what are your hopes and what are your fears um, for this process? And even just that allows you to kind of start from a place of, oh, we're human beings talk about this, talking about this. We're not just sort of, um, imitation pundits yeah and it sounds like what you're also advocating for is 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 building that trust where you are sharing your own perspective and then the other person shares theirs so that you can have this idea that we're gonna work this out we're gonna we're gonna actually find solutions that honor some of those things you know that's that's sometimes difficult just to find that space and time to listen do you do you have any I don't know. Have you, have you seen any organizations that, that, that make some structures to, to create mm-hmm. that space and time? Cause mm-hmm. we sometimes get so caught on the hamster wheel that we don't, we want to just find the solution quickly as opposed yeah. to, you know, do it effectively and find a, a real solution. Yeah. I mean, there's, so there's an organization we talk about in our book um, called Roca that is um, based here in Massachusetts in, in Chelsea, Mass. And it's a, uh, they started out as a kind of after school clubhouse sort of for teens in a, in a town that with some, you know, kind of tough issues um, from gang violence to youth prostitution to, um, you know, substance of various kind. And, um, and initially they started out as a as an organization that was like an advocacy organization. So they were advocating for these at-risk youth and trying to keep them trying to keep the cops from arresting them and putting them in jail and they were in constant clashing with the police and the schools and everyone trying to be advocates for these kids and the cops saw them as this like safe haven for criminals and so on. And what they did at a certain point they started really reflecting and asking themselves, Molly Baldwin, who's the executive director, started really asking herself, you know, is this working? And is this how we want to be being in the world? And um, she encountered a Native American practice, actually from a Canadian um, First Peoples uh, group um, of a peacemaking circle where you, you know, you get everybody sitting in a circle and you pass around a a talking piece and each person can either sound off or pass, but you, have to sort of wait your turn. Um, and there's some degree of ritual around it. And, um, and so they started bringing this peacemaking circle approach into their practice as an organization. So doing peacemaking circles with kids who had been in and out of different kinds of trouble and getting them to share and share their feelings and so on. So that, and so it kind of became a practice with the kids. It became a practice with how they managed themselves. And then gradually what they came to understand was that they had an opportunity to be doing things very differently as an organization in their larger environment. So they started, they started hosting peacemaking circles with the gang members and the police and the department of youth services, people all together each sharing their vantage points on what their experiences had been, what they saw the solutions to be. And it really became part of the DNA of how the organization operates. Um, As they've progressed, they've gotten sort of more and more focused and more and more effective in terms of um, working with specific populations and kind of keeping, um, you know, preventing violence and retaliatory violence, preventing youth prostitution, some other kind of key topics. But I, I helped, um, facilitate a gathering that they hosted where we had people from the court system, the department of youth services, the social services, the superintendent of schools, the president of the local community college, um, another community organization kind of like theirs and them and the, you know, the like commissioner of this, of the city and, you know, to develop leadership capabilities together, um, about how to work across these boundaries. And, um, 
And I think that's, so th that's an example of an organization that said, you know what, like this deeper level of connection between people is going to become the foundation of how we do, of what we're doing and what we're about. Now, they're not in a school system where they are trying to deliver against a set of nationally determined standards, right? So there's all kinds of constraints that a school is, like a public school is in. Um, and there's a way, there's, there's a fundamental choice that you can make, which is, are we going to be, you know, can we prioritize a, a goal of, of being a host for conversation and, and, and for developing skills of empathy and cross boundary collaboration towards solving problems better than any of us could do alone. And if you prioritize that, then, and then the way that you enact that commitment is by making space for high quality conversation. You bet. Um, you know what I'm saying? It totally sounds like they're creating the community um, and, and creating that space where people can come together and without them being trusting, having the space and having that sense of community, well, then they can't engage in those conversations that, that I think you advocate for. So that sounds like a great example. Mm -hmm. What would you say to people who, who think that in engaging in this process that you talk about, uh, kind of trade-offs and stuff like that, that, that they're fearful because they're going to undermine some of those values that they really hold dear. Um, mm -hmm. We find that some people are actually just scared to even engage in the conversation because they think that they're not going to win. And if they don't you know, fully adhere to their values by the end or whatnot, then... So what's an, what's an example of a topic or an issue that... Well, we have people, I mean, you brought up uh, sex ed, like some people just will not come in and they will not talk about it. And so they'll just pull kids. I'll just say mm -hmm. the kids aren't coming to school that day. We're not going to mm -hmm. talk about this. And we don't, we don't make any forward progress. Um, mm -hmm. we, we also feel like it, it might even have an effect, you know, socially on our society. If, if kids are walking around with, with perhaps misinformation or, or well, who knows? We don't even know because we can't even engage with them. Do you have any tips to, to help people come in to help them engage? Mm. You know, I've just, I've never been in that situation and I totally appreciate how, um, how hard that is to breach. Um, because in a sense, the stance that those parents are taking is that sexuality is not a topic for public discourse. And so therefore, like our kids aren't going to do it in the classroom and like, I'm not going to go join a public forum to talk about it either. Right. It's like, this is something that is either settled in some other venue, right. Whether it's, you know, a church community or whatever. Um, but it's just not something that is like part of the public sphere. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know exactly how you deal with that. Um, I think that, again, I would start by listening, right? I would start by saying, you know, is there, is there somebody, is there somebody who at the school who is thought, you know, really interested in having this conversation be more inclusive, um, who could go out and have a one-on-one -on -one or a focus group with some families that have pulled their kids out of sex ed day to say, we really want to understand what your hope, what your fears are, you know, what are your hopes and fears, right? Like what, what is it that you want for your child in this domain of sexuality? And, um, what, you know, and, and, and what, how does that lead you to the choices that you're making? Just inquiry, right? Without passing judgment, without, um, but just, I mean, d d that, that's a really important, there's a whole set of information that, that you just don't even have any access to. Yeah. At first, I think it'd be useful to understand that. And then what you might find is, well, you know what? Maybe we have some similar goals, right? Like, but maybe we have similar goals, but different sets of the means, right? Like maybe everybody is aligned around the goal of, we don't want teen pregnancy. We don't want abortions. They're sad. Um, we don't want, you know, but 
And we and and they're worried that having conversations about sex ed in the classroom is going to contribute to the culture sexualization of the kids and make it more likely that they're going to become sexually exploratory and more likely that they're going to have the teen pregnancies, right? Um, whereas another educator's theory might be, well, no, they're going to explore that regardless. They just need to have the right information. It's the lack of information that leads to the teen pregnancies. Right. And right. so, but what's interesting there is that the goals are the same, mm-hmm. and there's often not a space for talking about that. I mean, I, this is something, you know, I, I think is, is, is a very interesting space in, in American politics where abortion is this huge wedge issue and has been capitalized on by the, by both the left and the right. And, you know, when Obama and the Pope had, Pope Francis had a dialogue about this, they came to a very interesting space, which was that we both agree that there should be fewer abortions in the world. Like abortions are sad. Um, it's the hardest, one of the hardest choices that any mom has to make. And, um, and, and there are, you know, people out there who would like to adopt, there's, 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 there are reasons why we would want abortions to go down. And that was actually common ground. Now, radically different approaches to how you do that, right? Mm-hmm. One based on empowering women, giving them choices over their bodies, giving them access to contraception, giving them education about how to, um, you know, manage, uh, manage the conception process other than abortion. And another perspective that says, stop it, ban it, end it, courts, let's stack the courts, et cetera. Um, but it's, it's interestingly, a lot of conversations about this topic don't, don't find, don't even start from that place of common ends because the people on the left aren't willing to give to, to sort of say an abortion is a tragedy. I would like to see fewer of them happen. Because they're worried about ceding ground to a perspective that says, yeah, exactly. So therefore, we have to ban it. Right. Um, and conversely, the people on the right aren't willing to say, well, there might be other means to achieving this end um, that I'm not comfortable, that I'm less comfortable with. But that, you know, at the end of the day, I really want there to be fewer abortions. And so I think that even that that that's an interesting space to explore around these sex ed topics, too, because um, ultimately that is I mean, I think that is probably a common goal, Um, but but very different means. And 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 then and then. But but again, if you understand where people are coming from and you really show that you're listening and you really show that you're concerned about it, even if you end up proposing and moving towards a course of action that is that forces a compromise there's a way in which like there might be some reciprocity where there's some other area where you can be supportive Mm -hmm. like maybe you have two different sections of sex ed one that has one that presents issues in one way and one that presents issues in another way and then everybody can sort of show up to one of them right i mean you can get you can get creative it becomes possible to break trade-offs if you can be in a conversation where you're each holding your perspective, but in a way that explores new options. Yeah. Uh, I think that's some good, good food for thought there. One of the things I don't want to lose is, is I saw a video um, on your use of technology. So this is kind of a, a way from perhaps the book. It, it's more mm-hmm. about how you, you kind of teach. Um, I, I, this one was actually uh, a poll everywhere video and uh, yeah, it was, it was actually quite good. Can you, can you maybe share with us some of your effective strategies and technologies you use to increase the engagement in some of the work that you do with, with adults and I mean, students who are adults. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So look, this is, it's all woven together with what we've been talking about. So, um, I, I love technology. You know, like I said, I got a master's in technology education it's a fun territory. Um, so I tend to be an early adopter for things. Um, this was a technology, Poll Everywhere was a technology we stumbled, I stumbled on when I was facilitating a big conference and we needed to get input from everybody in the conference real time. Um, and so we piloted it for that and then later on realized that we could use it in kind of radically new ways. So um, what the technology is, is it's, it's a, it's a, it's a um, you create a poll and the poll is a question or a series of questions. And a person in the room who has a mobile device or a web browser on a laptop can answer the question 
and then their response shows up in real time on the presenter's computer screen. So when I'm a teacher, I just have to have a PowerPoint deck running this little pull everywhere software in the background. And, um, and I have, there's a slide. And when I pull that slide up, it asks the question, everybody gets that pull. And then the answers show up on the screen. Um, what's interesting about that is that the answers are anonymous. So you don't know who the person is or what their phone number is or anything like that. You just get these kind of anonymous results, but that are put up on the screen visible for everyone to see. And when we talk about this whole domain of difficult conversations, when you, the nature of a conversation that's stuck is that all the things that need to be said aren't getting said. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and part of the reason they're not being said is because there are, there are things that people are thinking and feeling, but not saying. Um, so I might, I might, you know, um, you know, kind of the joke that I, that I use in the book is, you know, I, you go down into my, I, like, you know, I go down to my basement in my house and all the lights are on and, um, and I, you know, I turn them off and I start kind of grumbling to myself. I go upstairs, my wife's in the kitchen and I say, someone left the lights on in the basement, right? Well, you know, my way of being in that moment is accusatory and self-righteous and, and kind of, um, you know, confrontational. Nothing in what the words that I've said are that like if you just saw a transcript, someone left lights on the basement. I'm not blaming anyone in particular, right? But there is an unspoken background conversation, right? That I'm thinking things that I'm thinking and feeling, but not saying, um, and that importantly shape how that conversation is going to go, right? Um, like, why don't you get this? I always have to be the guardian of green in my household and blah, blah, blah. And the prepared lecture, right? And, and that's all behind the conversation, but it's not being said out loud. And one of the things that we found is that if you ask on a poll, on these one electronic polls, you know, what are the things you're thinking and feeling but not saying, you can make that invisible visible mm -hmm. in a way that's safe because it's, uh, because it's anonymized, right? But it then everyone can see, oh, wow, you know what? There are other people in the room who are thinking and feeling the same things that I am but not saying them. Yeah. And therefore, it becomes possible to then then turn to the person next to you and have a face-to-face -face conversation about it, which you wouldn't have done because you didn't know that it was safe to talk about the thing that was on your mind, right? Uh, and this is actually a classic technique in sex ed where you have kids write questions on cards and then you pass them in and then the teacher goes through and answers the questions um, that people are afraid to ask out loud. So you don't need technology for this kind of thing. Um, this, however, is highly scalable. So you can have a room of 150 people and um, be posing, um, be posing questions and getting real time output, and you can do it as multiple choice questions. And so there's kind of bar charts popping up on the screen, or you can do open ended, and then the answers are sort of popping up in little thought bubbles. Um, and you know, I think a, what a lot of teachers have used this technology, and it's, teachers are a main use case for Poll Everywhere. Um, a lot of them use it for kind of spot quizzes. So they'll say, you know, um, you know, what's you know, what's the you know, what's the sign of a 90 degree angle? And then the kids have to enter a multiple choice. And it's a way of getting a diagnostic on whether they're staying with you in your trig lesson. Um, but what we've done is use it in this way where we go, we create more vulnerability and connection and authenticity between people faster than we ever could do without the technology. Yeah. Um, and, and then, and, and going back and forth between polls that let people disclose what's on their mind and then into conversation with the person next to them to, to explore the issue more. Um, so that has been really critical for us because our whole theory that you find in the book is this idea that you have to, you have to notice your own background conversation. You have to notice your way of being, you have to make a choice about how you're going to show up and what your way of being is going to be and what possibility you're going to hold in your mind for the conversation um, and that that then produces a better outcome. But we would have had no way of making that visible and knowing that connection between the inner and outer world without having some way of making that inner world visible. And um, and the technology is quite interesting in its ability to do that. That uh, sounds good. And it sounds like once it's out there, people are more willing to, to talk about it. Whereas mm -hmm. if they don't have that, it's almost like a primer. Uh, mm -hmm. that. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. great.
Hey, let's get into education a little bit more generally. Do you think there is something about learning or about education that you believe is true that most people or a high percentage of people would disagree with you on? Um, I don't know that this is that controversial, but I do think that there's a principle that I stand that that we take a stand on here at MIT Sloan and kind of in the group of people that I tend to work with, which is that you know there is this deficit model of learning that um, is still very tenacious, which is like th- this idea that my students. brains are only half or only half full and therefore my job is to get up and fill their brains up the rest of the way by communicating information to them. Um, and that's what teaching is. And I would contrast that with a discovery model of learning where people, where I can't teach you anything. You can only sort of learn things for yourself and build your own understanding through exploratory experimental learning with a topic. Um, and I don't think that's that controversial, but I, I, I really, it's amazing how little it's practiced. Yeah. Um, so for example, like when we teach, um, one of the things we know is, so when we teach people about climate change, for example, um, I can give you a lecture about the facts of climate change, right? And I can tell you about what, scenarios for changes in our energy use are going to result in what kinds of impacts on the climate. And it might be very interesting and plenty of people paid money to go see the inconvenient truth when Al Gore made that as a film. But at the end of the day, you don't really build that deep rich of an understanding from that kind of an experience. We have simula instead going back to the technology point, we have simulation tools and the simulation tool is something that I can play with on my computer and, and, and I can try um, saying, okay, what happens if the United States stops its emissions in a certain year and then declines it over time? And what happens if China does the same thing? Or what happens if we put more money into renewable energy and less subsidy for oil or put a price on, you know, uh, on greenhouse gas emissions through a carbon tax or something? And then, and then I can actually see interactively what happens to emissions. And I can I can flip among all the different graphs and I can really play with those scenarios. And I can, I can even say, you know what? I think those assumptions are wrong. I'm going to change those assumptions. And I, you know, I think these people are being too apocalyptic about the climate or too um, optimistic and you can play with all of that. And then what happens is that when people do that, they really build a richer understanding of how that system works. And and then they and, and our and our research shows that you that they are more act they they have a deeper understanding they are more emotionally engaged they're more activated in terms of wanting to take action on the problem um, than if they just received a sort of you know a lecture or, or a video or so on so I think that that explore and and the same thing goes for our work on conversations this podcast is is I don't see this. There's nobody's going to learn anything from this podcast. I'm sorry to say, um, this is essentially just an advertisement for a process, which is go, you know, think about the last time you had a conversation with someone that you didn't agree with that, that where you felt like you got stuck either because you were avoiding the conversation or because you didn't like the way it went. Now take that conversation, reflect on it. What were you thinking and feeling but not saying? What was your way of being? Um, what is it that you're really trying to accomplish in that conversation? Visualize the outcome you want. Create a new way of being. Go out and have that have a new conversation coming from a new place where you kind of acknowledge and apologize for your old way of being. And then see what happens. Write a, write a reflection paper about what happens in that new conversation. That experience is going to show you and allow you to learn more about self-reflection and empathy and, um, you know, co-creative problem solving than anything I can just tell you. Right. So creating experiences, you know, teaching is fundamentally about creating experiences. Um, and, and I think that we too often forget that, especially now as we move towards like, online learning and, and the sort of YouTube learning culture, 
um, this idea that we can kind of go consume information from anywhere and then we'll know it. Um, you know, I think it's, it's problematic. Um, I hear a lot of your Reggio inspired, um, uh values coming out here. And I've, I've always found it so interesting that the people who are, uh, the most likely to be independent have learning in, in universities. You know, these are adults. These are people who, who are going to go out and do this stuff are usually the ones who have learning that is most dependent on a professor being there. I mean, universities get a bit of a bad rap that it's all, um, you know, sage up on the stage and, and kind of lecturing style um, where it's the, the kids who there's probably going to be a lot of support there who have this discovery learning play-based center-based education. And so I'm glad to see that you guys are thinking about that. I think that, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, some topics lend themselves better to than others. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, you look really good lecturing has a place, you bet. right? Um, there are times when I just, you know, someone's really good, absor- you know, that sage on the stage conveying that information in a really compelling way makes a huge difference. Okay. The question is, when do I consume that? So I am a proponent of what I call the matrix model of education, which is like comes from the movie, the matrix. Um, so, you know, you've got like Trinity is up on a rooftop and she's fleeing the agents and there's a helicopter and she's like, oh, I need to learn how to fly a helicopter. Right. So then they plug the thing in the back of her head and, you know, the thing's already plugged in the back of her head, but then they like inject the helicopter program. And now she knows how to fly a helicopter and she jumps in the helicopter and goes. Okay. That's how the real world works. You don't know in advance what you're going to need to know. You have to learn it at the moment that you need it. Now, the best, now we don't we don't have sort of neural injection of knowledge, but we do have Khan Academy, right? We do have YouTube. We do have an increasing amount of modularized highest possible quality content that you can absorb at the moment where you you need it. So you're in the discovery mode of learning and then you're on demand grabbing the piece of content that is going to give you what you needed to learn at that moment. Um, and that's, I think, the inversion that we have to do as university educators and that is possible, you know, it's possible in K-12 as well, which is that you create kind of experiential opportunities where people have to solve complex problems and then you create these sort of archives or databases or repertoires of um, content nuggets that they can absorb as they need to so they learn the techniques that they need to. Um, and sometimes, in, you know, sometimes you just have to, I mean, you can't do that for everything, but I think that that is where we're, I think that's where we're headed. Yeah, I, I agree. I love that idea. Just in time knowledge. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, most of the time, if it's highly technical stuff and you don't do it often, you've forgotten it all already by the time you come to, uh, you know, a year later to actually mm-hmm. perform that skill. And that's, I think, also what you're saying about the lecture. It's not necessarily that lecture is bad. It's what are you doing with the information after the lecture? Is it mm-hmm. just sitting there and then you forget it or you're actually playing with that or you actually have an activity? So that's great. Mm-hmm. Let's get into a couple quick hitters. Um, maybe a shorter answer. Uh, do you have a favorite app or a website or other media? We already talked about Poll Everywhere, but do you have any any other apps or websites that you, uh, that you use or that you... Uh, in my capacity as an educator sure yeah um well i mean i'll 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 just make a plug for um so we've found system dynamics and systems thinking to be really important in the way that we teach about complex social environmental issues um there's a number of software packages out there to help people do that kind of modeling and simulation like i was describing um, Vensim is the one that we use here. Um, there's a product called Stella that is kind of a little bit more K-12 friendly. It's quite popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and we put out some simulation tools out of MIT Sloan on a website called Learning Edge um, that are freely available for K-12 educators, including probably my, the best one is this game called Fish Banks. That's a simulation of fisheries and building fishing companies in a common pool resource environment. So it's a, it's a cool multidisciplinary thing that teaches is concepts from natural resources, from economics and management and policy all at the same time. Um, so sort of a plug for things coming out of here. Um, 
Pull Everywhere has been an indispensable tool. Um, and um, I, you know, I have just, I, I just have really come to appreciate podcasts as a medium. Um, I think that in this, you know, I think it, it, I don't know exactly how to think about it in terms of education, but I often find that, you know, on, in that sort of on-demand learning mode, if I can find the right podcast episode at the right moment, that often ends up being the best way for me to explore a topic. You have this sort of real authenticity of a human conversation, but then the reach of social media. Um, and so I am a big fan of podcasts. Um, that's probably an app that gets some heavy, but you know, probably I think about, you know, what drains my cell phone battery. Um, that's definitely up there. You bet. Now, uh, let's talk about a book and, uh, I mean, breaking through gridlock, absolutely number one. Uh, but is there another book that you quote or refer to or have marked up? I mean, it's funny because I've been, I've had this kind of, like I said, very multidisciplinary. I've got, you know, sections of my bookshelf that are organizational behavior, research methods, education, human development, psychology, environmental sustainability, energy, social movements and transformation, social theory. So it's hard to choose something that's just like, you know, there's so many different domains um, I think that though for this audience, I'd probably go back to Peter Senge's work. You know, he, he was a real linchpin for me in, um, in, in making connections between a lot of these different territories. So he, he wrote a book called the fifth discipline that, um, was sort of this classic and talking about learning organizations, but then he did a field book for educators called schools that learn. Um, and that book schools that learn was a collaboration between Peter and a whole bunch of other people, um, looking at trying to make schools into learning organizations, thinking about how systems thinking and system dynamics could be applied to education. And, um, and, and I I think it's quite powerful because it deals with both kind of classroom pedagogy and all the way up to kind of big systems level change in education. Um, so I'd say that, that that's probably a book that I would highlight for this audience. That's great. Is there something that you do uh, most days or every day that keeps you well and healthy? Doggy CrossFit. Nice. Doggy uh, CrossFit. So I have a dog who I is 12 years old, and I try to keep him in shape by taking him to the park every morning and throwing a ball for him. You bet. And well, there was a day where I realized yeah. that you know, I was doing that and then also trying to exercise, which I was chronically bad at. So then I realized that as long as he's sprinting, I should be at a similar level of activity. So I throw the ball and then I do burpees while he's getting the ball. And then I throw the ball and I do push-ups, and then I throw the ball and I do lunges and we both jog home exhausted and the neighbors, um, would laugh at me and they started referring to it as doggy CrossFit. Um, so I'm, I, I, that, that has really worked for me because I, I didn't have any other way of, that I would reliably build exercise in my daily schedule. Yeah, it seems very efficient. Uh, I, it's going to catch on. You've heard it here fo- first, folks. Uh, doggy <laughs> CrossFit. Is there an organization or a person that really inspires you? Uh, wow. Um, there is well, so recent. So this is just kind of top of mind because I've been encountering this recently. But there's this guy called Dylan Marin who has a podcast called Conversations with People Who Hate Me, <laughs> um, and uh, he's a he's a young um, sort of LGBT activist slash performance artist, and um, he was getting a lot of like hate mail, hate comments on his social media, and so he decided to start finding these people and talking with them as human beings and recording the conversations and podcasting them. And then he started inviting other people who have blogs and digital presences that get hate comments to invite their haters into dialogues that he moderates. So each episode tackles a different pairing of a person and their hater. And, uh, but then they talk to each other as human beings. And uh, I think he's done a remarkable job with that. And ended up with some episodes that really richly explore some topics like 
feminism and non-binary um, sexual identity and um, uh, a number of other topics. So I, he is he is my hero of, of this week. Love it. What's uh, what's next for you? What are some of the projects that you're working on? Questions you're looking at answering? Uh, what can we look forward to uh, coming from from you from you and and maybe some of the groups that you're working with? Um, I have a so last uh, last winter I did a TEDx talk um, uh, around this topic of breaking through gridlock, um, and I've signed myself up to do another one of those um, in a different venue this October. Um, and as a forcing function for coming up with some new ideas, um, it's a little terrifying. Um, it's going to be this really great, fantastically organized TEDx Boca Raton event down in Florida. Um, and what I'm exploring is the topic of, um, commitment, um, and commitment to change, um, in, at multiple levels of scale. So commitment to making social change as well as kind of personal or organizational change. Um, what I've found with this breaking through gridlock work is that we can get, we're, we're, we're really good at getting people into conversations where they can start to explore some common ground and start to explore some new ideas that neither would have them, neither would have thought of on their own and which represent maybe breaking the trade-offs they assumed were there. Um, but the next step is for people to really take action on those goals, right? To, and really solve the problem and make change. And that requires something different. That requires commitment, um, commitment to um, new collaborative organizations and to just staying in it, being part of it, as well as commitments to achieving particular goals, whether that's, you know, emissions reductions or um, diversity targets or whatever it is. And, um, and I'm just, I, one of the things I, and we ask our own students in every class I teach, we ask students to make commitments at the end toward new actions that they're going to take as a result of, of their experience. Um, but then I realized that I'd never really looked into the research literature on commitments, um, and what, um, what makes a difference between commitments that sustain and, and those that fall apart. Um, so I've been looking at that at multiple levels of scale, trying to find some cross fertilization in cross, you know, insights between, you know, marriages that succeed and organizations that succeed and fisheries cooperatives that succeed, um, you know, personal goals for health behavior change, organizational goals and, you know, kind of national goals that succeed and those that don't and trying to see if we can, I can distill out some principles that are useful for people who are trying to mobilize challenging and breakthrough action to follow the breakthrough conversations. That sounds fascinating. And I look forward to watching that TEDx as well from Boca Raton. Hey, uh, let's say people are, are really interested in your work. They want to follow you. What are the best ways to keep up to date? Um, how might they be able to connect with you? Sure. Um, so if you're interested in the breaking through gridlock work, um, our website is, uh, breaking through Um, and all one word, um, or btgbook.com if you want fewer characters. Um, and that website has um, videos and um, resources. In particular, there's a whole section there on higher ed, and which is actually brought, applicable probably to high school as well, um, with curriculum, free curriculum resources you can download and that are available for educators who want to support their students in having constructive conversations across political divides. Um, so that, that website is, is useful. There's a hashtag breaking gridlock that we've been using for and encouraging others to use for examples of when people do this effectively. Um, that hashtag has, um, you know, exists on Twitter, um, uh, primarily, but also on Facebook and LinkedIn. Um, and then I am at Jason JJAY on Twitter um, and, uh, and I, you know, if there's any, any new stuff that comes out, I generally tweet about it. Um, that's probably the best way to follow me. I also have a presence on LinkedIn, but I am less likely to post stuff there. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm looking forward to, uh, like I said, following along with you in your, uh, projects. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing a whole bunch of really great knowledge. You got me thinking and cool. uh, bringing it back to my school. 
Cool. Thanks for having me, Corey. That was my conversation with Dr. Jason Jay. Before you go, I'd like to recognize that the land where this interview took place is a sacred place that has a long history of human existence. This land has helped people like the Cree, Salto, Nisitapi, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux live well for thousands of years. Let us continue to live well and to respect this land. Thanks. We'll be back soon with our next episode.